Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that's Phil Manzanera and Tim Finn and the Ghost of Santiago. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Phil here today to talk about that very exciting project and Roxy Music, which Phil's very notable for. A huge welcome, Phil. Thank you very much. Great to, to be doing this. Yeah. The, the Ghost of Santiago, the title track of your latest album with Tim, it's very evocative in terms of the start of it. There's strings, piano there. I guess the way that you interface with Tim is, is a really interesting dynamic in that you kind of set the tone and then he comes on top and adds to it. Is that how you see it? Yeah, um, all of these tracks um, have started with the music first. And um, really, I realise that that's what I'm good at, it's actually, you know, and is creating good musical textures and good musical world, really, uh, for people to sing in. And luckily, Tim came on board with that method of working, which is not his usual method of working. But, of course, it is my usual method of working that I've used within any collaborations I've done within Roxy and also any of my solo projects or any collaborations with any of the many people I've worked with. It tends to be, I will do some music, and if there's a singer, especially if there's a singer, I, they will do the top line and the lyrics. I mean, I, I have done three albums over the years of my own where I sang and I mm. wrote the lyrics, but especially if I'm writing with a singer, I think it's totally right for him to sing his own words. But, you know, when I look at it, the big picture mm. of uh, pop music and popular music, there is great history of people who write the music and then the people who write the words on top, quite apart from it only became really the singers that were writing the words almost um, in the 60s, really. That, you know, funny enough, from then onwards, and what we call pop music or rock music, and obviously with the classic things with the Beatles and, mm. and then the Stones, you know, that they were singing other people's songs and then they would, say you know how about doing some of your own songs and then that whole tradition obviously there was some folk singers before Pete Seeger and in that tradition but generally so you know in some ways I am like the person who writes the music <laughs> especially on this project there you go so the ghost of Santiago you know I had I know I knew I wanted the first bit to be weird and wonderful and then it went in to um, that chord sequence but when I sent it to Tim he then added that piano motif and quite a lot more music than on any other track uh, out of any of the 25 tracks that we've done so he that really was a mixture and of course he then inserted his story which he's very good at you know little stories about this quite a what he calls a profane story, which is about a priest who falls in love with a nun and it's meant to elope with her, but she never turns up. <laughs> so it's an unrequited love story. <laughs> and, you know, I was just as surprised as I'm sure people listening to it, you know, because you could never predict this kind of a setting, you know, with that musical setting. And you mentioned the Ghost of Santiago. That's a has kind of got a love theme, a uh, love story with, with a twist, but our love seems to be a much more direct example in terms of one of the other tracks that many people's heard off that new LP. Yes, I mean, our love, 
again, I had the music all done on that one, and I sent it to Tim, and I think he it's a more um, challenging um, set of chords for to write top line to. Mm. But it immediately, the, the piano part that I put on was sort of evocative for him and spurred him to just come up pretty quickly with this, with a love song, really. And, um, and it was quite concise. And he was thinking in his mind, he said to me, you know, I, I get the vibe of um, Traffic, you know, the band called Traffic or Steve Winwood. And that, that led him, he could sort of relate to that and that, in his process, I'm not quite sure what happens, but he must have, he's very good at crafting lyrics and he has, uh, he must have a book somewhere that he <laughs> writes down his ideas for lyrics. And he was able to, with all these tracks, to turn them around within a few days, even one day, tracks just, I'd send him some music because of the time difference between mm. London and Auckland, well, not London, I mean West Sussex and Auckland, uh, it would arrive the next, I'd go to sleep, I'd wake up next morning, it would arrive with him singing on it. And, I, I, you know, I swear nothing changed with those that vocal line or lyrics over the 25 songs that this process wow. continued. It, it was extraordinary for me to work with someone like that who could just turn things around and have that ability. You know, I've worked with some incredibly talented people over the years, whether it's Eno or David Gilmore or Brian Ferry and, and uh, Robert Wyatt and all sorts of people. They take their time mm. over crafting their activity. But Tim, uh, you know, has this Irish gene, I think, mm. <laughs> that both him and his brother, Neil, have. And they have an extraordinary ability to be very poetic, which a lot of Irish... Uh, singer-songwriters have, you know, even though they're Kiwis, in theory. Time is on our side 
obviously this is your your second down with, yeah. with Tim in terms of this partnership was all the the material must have been one incredibly prolific period yes it, it all happened between the first um email from him to say you know have you got any music or stuff you know was the beginning of lockdown March 20 you know we were both locked down and had time on our hands you know and I just searched through my computer um Initially, it was, have you got any slow Latin grooves? I said, aha, you've come to the right place <laughs> with my background. <laughs> and then once I'd used up all of those, um, I started, like, searching on my computer for other things. I just kept sending him stuff. And 25 songs later. So the first album had 10. This has got 10 on it. And there's five more, which will come out. I think next year we'll bring out some vinyl. Brilliant. Both are double vinyl with the two albums and the five extra tracks, which are all totally different. You, you just wouldn't be able to predict what those five tracks sound like. I mean, I've got them on here. But <laughs> what happens is that, you know, you finish uh, like 10 of them and you finish them off. And then you think, you know, let's have a break. So we had like three or four months break and then let's finish off the next 10. Mm. 
and then you know later in the year we'll finish off the next five and see you know and then and that'll probably be it you know it, it's a project it would be lovely i mean i i heard him say in, an, in a podcast that he did that he might be coming next year to the uk to do some gigs um and i know he's working with an irish uh, songwriter that he's worked before so you know if i'm free i might say well should we do some gigs you know mm. a few gigs it would be it'd be just great absolutely the title track of the first album of, of your partnership caught by the hat you mentioned that obviously with your roots as well but obviously you were he asked for some sort of latin style songs caught by the heart the song itself seems to have that latin feel to it well again it was a song that had a certainly Latin percussion and things, mm. it ended up sounding like a strange hybrid, not so Latin as other tracks, but it did start out that. And that a lot of the, the songs that I sent him, maybe about 10 of them had, did have top lines and did have lyrics, but I decided not to send them to him mm. because I, I was writing it for another album, for a, an album I was doing with a Colombian musician. And I thought, no, I'll just take those off so he doesn't get any sort of idea of what I was meant to be on about and then see what happened. So it was very experimental in that sense.
And another great song from that first album of yours and Tim's was A Galleon of Stars. Yeah. Are you ever surprised by the results that you get back? Because the way that he puts that top line on on the, the, the brilliant bass sounds and melodies that you've got are really impressive. It was very impressive, yeah. Totally in awe of his talent and the subject matter of the song Galleon of Stars. Well, for a start, Galleon of Stars, when I saw the title, I thought, this is amazing. I've never seen that mm. title anywhere. I Googled it, see if there was, you know, almost what does it mean? Is it is it a known phrase? Or I think it's just something he made up. But to be, it's a great image. And to be a, a song about sending young people off to war was so prescient. And it's become so prescient, you know, with the war in Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, it was just totally, totally ahead of its time, a year ahead of its time. And sadly, you know, it's about older generals and things. I mean, really, I suppose it's about the First World War, but it's a war yeah. where, you know, people sit at home, older people, they send young conscripts off to war who get carried away on the scallion of cells, thinking, you know, it is a fantastic cause. They get, they believe this. Well, look at the Russian soldiers in the things that they're doing Ukraine, and I mean, they they get carried away on a galleon of stars. So, I mean, it, it what's interesting about what Tim sends back is that the subject matter and its lyrics are written by a person who has been in the music business for as long as me, you know, 50 years, and is writing about subject matter that is relevant to, you know, he's just, his birthday was a few months ago, and he was 70 as well, you know. And pop music and popular music has been historically a lot about young people and about falling in love and emotions and things like that. And until you get to Bob Dylan, then you get more in Leonard Cohen and mm. stuff. So it, it is it, very much like Leonard Cohen was writing about adult things as he grew older and older and towards the end of his life. To a certain extent, you know, this is what Tim is, is doing in the subject matter that he's covering. So... It was. It is a new area for me that I'm enjoying getting involved in. And that's one of the great things about the pair of, of albums is that the range of influences that you pull in. And there seems to be something or, or elements that are unique to you because obviously based in England and English, but you've got such a strong Latin background as well in terms of um, South America. That comes in at, at times and then brings more things to the fore. That's right. I think Tim fell in love with South American music. And way back when we started working, I was working on an album called Southern Cross in the end of the 80s when he came past through England. And he wanted to join in on that project, which I had quite a few Latin musicians, South Americans with me on it. And then he went off to Cuba and uh, he'd met a Chilean friend in, in Rome and Actually, the ironic thing about Santiago, the ghost of Santiago, is that I always imagined we were talking about Santiago de Compostela, which is in the north of Spain. Mm. He was always thinking of Santiago, the capital of Chile. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so because I was brought up in Cuba and Venezuela and in Colombia, I had a Colombian mother, big family in Colombia, you know, that's my knowledge and worked with lots of uh, musicians from South America. That's all part of my palette, if you like, my musical palette. And I think he, you know, through talking to him as well, he, he wanted to 
put some Spanish on it. So, I mean, he sang, sang in Spanish and, uh, even though he doesn't speak Spanish and sort of, so I would check that his, he'd write in English, translate into Spanish, sing it in Spanish. I would then correct any grammatical things or, anything, or mm. suggest some way of pronouncing things because I, I'm fluent in Spanish. Yeah. So I think it was a bit of an adventure for him. And, um, I mean, we also had a song which would come out next year on, in, with him singing in Italian. Oh. And I know that he, he on the, the Forensics album, which is the other album that he's done with uh, Eddie Rayner from Split Ends and that I collaborated on, he sings in French and stuff. I mean, it is, and he said that, you know, it is nice to sing in another language because the phonetics are sort of different. And the texture, tonal texture of your voice can be different. And I've sung, when I sing in Spanish on some of my albums, I become a different person. It's like, you know, being a character actor or something. So that was another very interesting side to this project, yeah. More willing and more able Than a young man who has something to believe in In Somalia, Ukraine and the Congo Young men cradle their new machine guns They get The war for their elders Sacrificing their lives for no reason They get carried away All for the hell of it On a gallon of stars Now they're all men putting their stamp on it Romans worshipping Mars First you gave him a lie to believe in There is nothing he could do that's beneath him Problem solvers make decisions for him this beautiful passion becomes a program Like a Richard Strauss was The impulse will govern him He'll give in to the swirl Join the dance and remember To keep on smiling 
talked about your roots and the range of styles and when you were in England and getting into music getting to play music for the first time rock music was still pushing forward and there were still endless possibilities it must have been quite an exciting time in in the uh, late 60s early 70s well yeah I mean up until 1965 I was going backwards and forwards to uh, Venezuela Uh, but once my dad died and I stayed here permanently it was a very exciting time And I had decided that I wanted to be a professional musician. And I went to meet a friend of my brother's who who had just joined Pink Floyd, David Gilmore, asked him Mm. what you have to do to become a professional musician. And uh, so I was just, I was 16. And he can't remember what he said, but he said that it must have been good because five years later, I managed to join a band (laughs) called Roxy. But it was an exciting time because if you meet when you're a teenager or Young, you meet somebody who is already a, a professional yeah. in any field, and they're nice and they're accommodating, and you see them and they're role models. You know, and you think I could do that, I could be that. And it's so important for young people to have role models that are good and helpful. <laughs> so, you know, I was the recipient of. You know, I met David and and I met Robert Wyatt as well when I was 16. So these people were fantastic in spurring me and my friends on to be musicians and to work in all different genres and to listen to lots of music. And um, they were both in two of the coolest bands at that time, Soft Machine and Pink Floyd. So just so lucky to be in the right place at the right time. You know? It does seem like the right place and right time because you were in bands before, but in terms of full professional band, yeah. Roxy was your first, wasn't it? Yeah. No, we had a school band called Quiet Sun. Uh, and, well, not a school, it was called something else. It, mm. And someone reminded me the other day, so you know, I was doing an interview for America, and the last question was, was there ever any unreleased um, material from Wing Commander Nixon and the Wheat-Eating Bees. (laughs) I said, how the hell did you find out about that name? Because that name and the next school band, which was called Pooh and the Ostrich Feather, and in fact the band just before Roxy called Quiet Sun, all those names were thought up by the brother of the bass player, Bill McCormick, who's called Ian McCormick, but his his author's name, pen name, was Ian McDonald, and he became... Uh the editor of The Enemy, and he became, he wrote a famous book on the Beatles called Revolution in the Head. Yes. And great book on Shostakovich, sadly no longer with us. But um, 
he used to think up the names, you know, and said, you, he was a bit older than us. And he would say, this is, this is what you must do. And we obeyed him. He was a bit like a mentor. Fantastic. When you hear that first Roxy album yeah. and tracks like Remake, Remodel, it's just such an excitement and vitality to it. You put it on and it immediately grabs you. That was that sort of first apparent when you joined the band? Yeah. No, I mean, you know, when I joined the band, that was already written. You know, all that stuff was, yeah. was written. So I came in, I was very lucky. I came in at the very last moment, answered an ad to the melody maker, went for an audition, failed the audition, but three months later was asked to come and they didn't work out with the guitarist at the time and joined a week after. No, I mean... Four days after my 21st, on my 21st birthday, I was looking in a, into the abyss. I had nothing going. <laughs> Four days later, I was in effect in Roxy Music. One week later, I'd signed with them, a contract with a management company. A month later, I did uh, three gigs in the studio recording the first album. And then, it, you know, it came out, i trying to remember, was it the 27th of June or 21st? Same day as Ziggy Stardust. Wow. And the week after Sigidaras, we were supporting at a pub in Croydon, David Bowie. And then, you know, it was like a magical mystery. I mean, it was like Christmas every day. <laughs> Just the luck of being in the right place at the right time. And I look back at it now, you know, and it's 50 years later. It's ridiculous, really. So Remake Remodel was always exciting. We always started the set with it. Mm. And... It starts with some extra party noises of people clinking glasses and things, which we had a lot of fun recreating in this old BBC studio. And very simple, only three chords to it, except for the very, very ending where it just goes down chromatically. But, and it was exciting, and it, it summed up everything. And I think it came, the title came from a Richard Hamilton painting. Oh. Richard Hamilton was the father of British pop art and had been the teacher of Brian Ferry up at um, Newcastle, where he studied fine art. So him and his friend, Nick DeVille, who was the art director on the first album, who became a professor at, at uh, Goldsmiths College and taught all the YBAs, so that, were taught by, and I think there's a painting called Remake Remodel, and, and that is, but it was so simple but striking and still sounds great today and the bubble coming out of my head was i'm in the velvet underground now <laughs> <laughs> because it was chunky 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 chugga 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 and exciting and inspired amateurs that's what we used to think what we were doing you know and it, that whole idea that you didn't need to be technically absolutely brilliant. But if you knew three chords and you had an idea or a concept and created some resonance, you could be successful. Mm. And I think that was the sort of inspiration for the whole punk as well, you know, and lots of people that it's about what the song's about. And you do it with a lot of enthusiasm. You too can be successful. I mean, when I hear Wet Lake, for instance, I, I, I think of that. It just reminds me of <laughs> like, us at the beginning in a bizarre way. You know, obviously, we're not women, <laughs> but it's that sort of lots of enthusiasm in there, and they're just like fun. And there was a lot of fun and laughter in that period. Of 
Mm. Mentioned Chugga Chugga, but there's such exciting moments like in every dream home, a heartache in terms of that incredible legendary now guitar break where you let go. Was was that all planned out? Obviously, we knew that was the bit where there was going to be a guitar solo. Mm. So, but at that point, I was, um, you know, working very closely with, with Eno and, and we had a, a setup of um, this this technical geeky stuff, but it's sort of guitar pedal board by Pete Cornish with, there was very little you could buy then. It was a fuzz box in it and an mm. MXR phaser. And, but I used to send a signal into Eno synthesizer that he would then manipulate. And we had special tape recorders called uh, Revox tapes that we could control the speeds of the motors. And it was all very British Heath Robinson sort of stuff. There was, you know, it wasn't like you could go and buy computers and, and buy pedals. And so it was all homemade and adapted stuff. So that solo and the solo in Ladytron, those are like joint solos, me and Ina. Uh. And that's one of our little features that we used to do. And that, was quite unique at the time because people didn't know how we did that. And I'm not sure we quite knew exactly what we were doing, but it was great fun. In every dream home, a heartache And every step I take Takes me further from heaven Is there a heaven? I'd like to think so Standards of living They're rising daily But home, oh sweet home It's only a saying From bell push to faucet in smart town apartment The cottage is pretty The main house a palace Penthouse perfection But what goes on? What to do there? Better pray there Open plan living Bungalow ranch style All of its comforts Seem so essential I bought you mail order My plain wrapper baby Your skin is like vinyl the perfect companion You float in my new pool Deluxe and delightful Inflatable doll My role is to serve you Disposable darling can't throw you away way now Immortal and life-size 
my breath is inside you I'll dress you up daily And keep you till death size Inflatable doll Lover ungrateful I blew up your body But you blew my mind leaving Roxy a, a mixed blessing in, in the sense that incredible to have him in Roxy as a, as a foil, as you described, but it also potentially gave you a bit of space, certainly in relation to writing music. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, it's from the third album onwards that both me and Andy start contributing music for Brian to try and write top lines to. But it was for me, you know, I was very close to, to Brian, you know, and we continued working yeah. the same time I was working on Stranded. I was also working on his album, Here Come the Warm Jets, organized the studio for him down in Clapham, a cheap studio, and then co-produced his next album, Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy, and continued playing with him in the 801 Live project. And then he met Bowie and never saw him again. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> um, he went off to work with David yeah. Bowie, and, and yeah, he then was very busy doing all that, but I just got on with other things, yeah. So it did give within Roxy space, and we did a load of stuff in that period. You know, in the 10 years that we were together, we did a lot of um, Roxy stuff, 
We did a lot of solo projects. Yeah. When I look back at it, it's exhausting just reading the list of all the different albums that Brian Ferry, Brian Eno, Andy Mackay, and me did and produced other people within a 12-year period that bookends the first album and album and touring as well. Oh, yeah. Amazon, now that's um, one of the, the first tracks you did with Roxy in terms of that you yes. contributed uh, in the songwriting department? Yes, I had a riff and then in some chords and then Brian liked it. And it was also an opportunity for me to get some modules. I had these modules made by the guy who made the VCS3 synthesizer, Enos, that you could use as a guitarist. I've still got them, actually. And, and that was the one track, the only track, that you can hear that on. It sounds a bit like sort of underwater guitar or something like that. But it was extraordinary recording that worked just once and it never sort of really worked again properly. Chris Thomas had a, a key role as a producer in that period, didn't he? Yeah. A great roots that he had originally coming in in the latter, latter years of the Beatles and then following it through. That's right. You know, Chris Thomas was absolutely essential in Roxy's development from the second album to the end of Siren, the fifth album. As you say, he had been George Martin's assistant. He knew where all the bodies were buried, so to speak, in terms of production. He knew what the Beatles, how they recorded. All those Abbey Road, British, traditional, evolving recording techniques, which are so different to American recording techniques, and passed that on. You know, and that's how I learned my craft. Between that side of things and Branino uh, is the basis of my ability to produce people. That all grew out of those two people. And Chris taught us how to record that method of part playing, which, and actually, funny enough, in the Beatles uh, doco that came out, Let It Be, you know, you can see a young Chris uh, in the control room at uh, downstairs at the Apple recording studio. I sent him a, an email, actually, because he's living in Australia. I saw you, you know, <laughs> the young you with the tie. Of course, they all had to wear tie, shirts and ties <laughs> in the control room. It's very exciting to know someone who was there when all that was happening.
and some of the effects on the albums and out of the blue from Country Life, that's got some phasing at the start. Was yes. That, that where you and Chris came in? Well, yeah, I mean, tape phasing, you know, you did that um, literally with tape. You know, you can now simulate this lots of plugins and, well, before that, there was machines that would do that for you. But that is the real tape phasing that was, I think, invented at, at Abbey Road for the first time, that way of creating that sound using analog tape. And then, I mean, all the eight Roxy albums were recorded on analog tape. Uh, yeah. and so to a certain extent, that's why they still sound good, because it's very organic. Uh, it's real people playing together. And although at the very end, Avalon, things started to change, new technology. But most of, of the, because there's 80 Roxy songs and probably 75 of them all done in the analog domain. Mm. In terms of how, how you collaborated with Brian, it seems that you've got different approaches that produces something magic at times where I've read that Brian can be a bit of a perfectionist where you can just lay things down a bit more and then you kind of meet in the middle. Is that, is that what you recognise? Yeah, I, I mean, I am much more laissez-faire. But, you know, I was brought up with those jamming bands, listening to those jamming bands in the mid-60s, you know, taking off on huge, long improvisations, whether it's the West Coast bands or even Velvet Underground. On the first Velvet Underground album, uh, European Sun, for instance, starts with a little fast riff and then just goes off. Yeah. Comes back in the very same way that jazz was doing from the middle of the 50s with bebop and stuff. They'd take a melody or something and then they'd be off for like 10 minutes and they'd come back to a bit of melody at the end, which is very much what bands were doing in the 60s. And bands like Cream, yeah. you know, who had not a lot of material, so the Crossroads would last like 15 minutes or something, <laughs> play the riff and stuff, and then just jam. But of course, you had a couple of jazzes in Cream. You had Jack Bruce and you had Ginger Baker, very much. And then and they knew how to improvise, you know. Yeah. But they did it because actually they did it a lot of time because they, they didn't have a lot of material. Oh, 
taking a break in the mid 70s was that i mean obviously you were you were all doing so many different projects was that just an opportunity to give yourself a breather from from roxy well looking back on it i think roxy uh, worked very well in five year little stretches although to tell you the truth after Lebanon, there was an 18 year stretch <laughs> but you know it is true roxy is a band but in some ways it's not a band it's a collection of, yeah. of individuals who are into music and into different kinds of music right from the beginning. And that's what brought us uh, together, certain types of music that unified us. But Brian started doing solo stuff after For Your Pleasure, and we all did. We thought it's an opportunity to work with other people. And we've been doing that for the last 50 years. So, But every now and again, I, I liken it a bit to having a beautiful car that's in your garage, <laughs> say uh, a Bentley or Mulliner Park Ward, Coupe, Drophead Coupe, limited edition, and you have it in your garage. It's got a beautiful cover over it. If there's a lovely day outside, you think, oh, I'll take it for a spin. So you take the cover off, you admire it's beautiful, dig the fins or whatever. <laughs> you go out for a drive, and if it's one of those 60s cars, it's a bit clunky inside, and you think, well, this is lovely, but actually, I've had enough of this. Let's put it back in the garage, put the cover on. Right, I get in by Ford Fiesta or something. <laughs> um, and it's a bit like that. It's a, a beautiful thing that occasionally gets taken out. And here we are, you know, taking it out 50 years later. That must be exciting to be getting together again. And yeah, you've got some dates here in the UK and you, you've got quite a lot of dates in uh, in North America, in particular the, the United States. Yes, it's because they the, there was someone in America who said to Brian, do you fancy doing some dates? And Brian, you know, we sat down, had a cup of tea, and he said, do you fancy doing some dates? Yeah. I'm always up for, for doing some dates, and, and it's our 50th, so it is appropriate to go out, and you never know what's going to happen in life, and with COVID, and so yeah. you think, whoa, it'd be great to do some gigs. You know, so bring up Andy, yeah, Paul Thompson, yeah, great. So, and then, you know, you, you suddenly start listening to the old stuff, and you think, wow, 
be great to play that song. And I really, you know, get you get back into enjoying the music. So we have obviously there's 80 songs you can't play. So, so mm. we whittled it down to 30 songs. We're going to be starting rehearsals next week. We will try them out and try different ones and see which ones sound good still and which ones work together well. And it's because Roxy changed and evolved and it's very different between the first album and that one. Yeah. You've got to blend it together to create a show. So that's a whole other craft and the, the visual aspect of it. So, you know, so we want to do a good job. So we'll, we'll be trying our best. We've got been listening to the original tapes and listening to the parts of what we played. Yeah. And, you know, I've been having to relearn how to play it, play what the 21-year-old played, which is <laughs> rather annoying, you know, to having to relearn my what my 21-year-old self played, mm. which is actually a bit mad and, and quite difficult to play now mm. <laughs> because it doesn't follow. There's a lot of enthusiasm, but doesn't follow conventional patterns. So... It's provided a very challenging thing now to actually have to work out what I thought I played and what I really played. Mm. So we're trying to make it sound as much like the original recordings throughout the whole period. And you've referred to the uh, those different periods, those five-year cycles, and Manifesto is really interesting because it seemed to be a, a transitional mm. period where the first single from that trash has got really kind of almost the original Roxy sound. And then you get to say Angel Eyes and then you've got that sort of new era of Roxy music that, that came in. How did that, how was that transition made and, and what flipped that into the sort of well, almost eighties Roxy? You know, we hadn't, you're right. We hadn't been working together for a few years, two or three years. And the whole music scene changed. Punk had happened and disco had suddenly appeared. And, you know, we came up with some music. We wanted to obviously not repeat what we did before. And so we just jumped in and we we spent a month just jamming and, and trying out lots of different things and then eventually whittled it down to a set of songs and said, right, well, we're going to finish these off, whatever happens. And no idea where it was leading. But because we then went and recorded some of it in New York and – um were visited on quite a few evenings by Ahmet Erskine, who was the head of Atlantic Records. After being partying, he'd come in as DJ at the end of his evening and listen to something and say, yeah, that's good. Mm. And then he'd, he'd listen to a track like Dance Away and say, it needs fours on the bass drum because disco was really good. And he would say, oh, yeah. And then he would go off and say, we're not fucking putting fours on the disco. We're not a disco band. You can forget that. <laughs> so anyway, he'd go off and then he'd come back a few days later well, you haven't done that and yeah okay well we'll put it on and then we managed to get all the way back to London we were cutting the record in a little cutting room in Victoria and back at me he walks in so where the where's the fours of the bass drum <laughs> so no okay so we put a new mix with fours on the bass and that really saved us because that became a hit Whereas trash, it just got nowhere. So yeah. we that kick-started that next phase of Roxy, and it was it was because of him, really. He could hear a hit, and you know we were finding our way again. And so 
they were those albums were a yeah. series of sort of transitions that flesh and blood with different kinds of sound eventually paul thompson left so we had session drummers yeah using bass players from new york and stuff and just we'd all worked with different musicians over that period so it all blended into something different not so cohesive if you like as the first onslaught of Roxy it became something different
and then eventually ended up with an album which is almost like an ambient album, which is really where Brian was at at that time. But we, but we also, I had a recording studio then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I built one, and that became our base. And I built a specially big control room so he could play in it. And you change your method of working, it you create something different. And that's what happened. And that's why that album is quite unique, really, because you start using the uh, recording studio as an in- instrument in itself. And the limited amount of technology mm. that existed at that time was used to the nth degree. You know, there was no computers yet and stuff, but they had invented a thing called Lindrum. It sounded like a, yeah. a real drum. And they had certain bits of studio equipment that you could put things through called noise gates and create sort of almost like a sequencer type effect. So that was used, all used in the creation of Avalon. And then going to New York to mix it with the amazing engineer who recorded some of the drums called Bob Clearmount, who took our meanderings and stuff and just mixed every track in three hours, five days, three hours a track, started at 10 in the morning, finished at six. So there you are. Listen to the mix. Do you like it? Yeah, great. Next, next, next. And so, you know, when you work with brilliant people, it becomes easier, the whole process. Would you have me there? 
Bringing us back to your collaboration with Tim, yeah, you first met Tim way back in in that initial phase of, of Roxy Music. I've, I've read that you were in, you actually went to New Zealand at the time and you were touring there, and you saw the early split ends on, on TV. Well, actually, it was Australia. Yeah, oh, I Australia. mean they'd they'd just come over to Sydney and from right. New Zealand, and yeah, on the first evening I arrived at ten on the telly, they were on the telly, and it wasn't what I was expecting. And then the next day, it turned out they were the support band for us wow. at our first gig in Sydney. And I thought, this is extraordinary. They're, where did this lot come from? It's a bit like when Bowie saw us for the first time. He thought, where did this lot come from? <laughs> Heck, I've been doing four albums, and, and this this lot turn up, and they're all fully formed. It was the sort of same me looking at Spirit Ends. They were terrific. So I just said, anything I can do to help. And they said, can you produce our album? I said, well, it's not likely, is it? Because I'm going back to England and you guys are here. But they actually eventually uh, re-recorded their first album with me here at Basing Street yeah. Studios in Notting Hill. And that was in the other Couturus. We were in Studio 2, I think. Studio 1 was Bob Marley recording Exodus. Oh. And it's a small like place where you make your teas and your coffee so, with the football machines. So... We were all there. Can you imagine Split Ends and the Bobali <laughs> and the Whalers? It's just like <laughs> incredible. And it was such fun. They were great, you know. So, yeah, I met them in 1975, Tim. Mm. And here we are, you know, just released an album so many years later. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. You meet a lot of friends on the way who you get on with, as well as being great musicians. And, and when I do projects and so-called solo albums, it's just an excuse to bring those people up and say, let's work together on something. And I thought it'd be good to close with uh, another track from The Ghost of, of Santiago, and that's Curtain Call. It seemed very fitting 
Do you recall what inspired you initially with the textures on that track? Again, another evocative song. Yes. Well, I, I wanted to do something with a sort of string arrangement or classical type of chord sequence progressions and things. So I, I just did the demo here, and I, I and it was an instrumental. And I thought, well, I send it to Tim, and he just sang along with, created that. And you know, I was listening to it the other day, and I was, I still don't quite understand what it's about. Whether it's about his father, whether it's about war, whether it's about someone with Alzheimer's, or I just cannot work out. I need to cross question him. <laughs> but it arrived the day after I sent it to him with this vocal on it, and and I thought, wow, it seems just. Perfect. I, I don't know how he did that. You know, it's sort of a magical thing. But I must say that, you know, we recorded all here in this room. Me, yeah. not we. Uh, I recorded my bits here. Him in his room. He doesn't, you know, there's two different kinds of uh, software programs you can use. Well, there's GarageBand yeah. and there's Logic. He refused to upgrade to Logic. So he does everything on GarageBand. He records his vocals himself. It's like comes free with an <laughs> Apple or whatever garage band. He's got his one microphone. He sends me one take. And that is the take. There's no other takes. He doesn't repeat it at all, ever. It's quite extraordinary, actually. Uh, you know, there's all this money you can spend in a studio with yeah. highfalutin stuff. I've got one mic here, one amp, you know, a cheap mic on the guitar. I've got Logic software. but we do have this incredible engineer, almost like co-producer, quite mm. frankly. He should have credit. I'll have to try and remedy that. Mm. Called Mike Body, uh, who has worked with everyone from Radiohead to Brian Ferry to Brian Eno to Mead. He's done everything that I've done for the last 10 years. And he's in Greenwich, and we just send him a file, and then he has all the fancy stuff to mix it and is a really, really excellent guy. So. You know, you couldn't do it with two numpties like us, <laughs> sort of technologically slightly challenged, but can get stuff on tape. And then this guy, absolutely, again, you know, it's like a genius. It's like Bob Clown Mountain or mm. Brett Davis, who worked on all the stuff with me and Eno and with Brian Ferry. You know, th there are these people who are in the periphery of what we do who are, we couldn't do it without these kind of people so anyway yeah that's fantastic and as we discussed at the start yeah the new album the ghost of santiago has got fantastic reviews it's a testament to, to that sort of post-production the sound of it because yeah it sounds amazing it does sound amazing and so you know let's give full credit to mike body quite frankly <laughs> but and tim recognizes that as well what we discovered is obviously before lockdown didn't know anything about Zoom. So we learned to do Zoom, but we never thought of doing Zoom between me and Tim. I don't know why, until we'd finished Caught by the Hard Album. We said, actually, do you think we should just see each other on Zoom? I said, oh, blimey, why didn't we think of that? And with this album, I discovered that you could do mixing on Zoom. So actually the three of us, Mike in Greenwich, Tim in Auckland, and me sat here well, in our respective places, saw the mixing disc, and we were all at the same time and said, right, yeah, give that a bit more of this, that more of yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. And I think back to how we recorded the first Roxy Music album, that where we are now, 
is incredible. Anyway, thank goodness. Well, it's been amazing to talk to you, Phil, Great. and uh, fantastic to hear the material, old and new, especially the new. And I wish you all the, the best with the forthcoming Roxy tour. Thank you. Hugely exciting, and uh, I look forward to sort of more on the uh, the solo front in, uh, in the post Roxy tour period as well. Great. Thanks a lot, Jason. Nice one. Cheers. Bye. See you later then. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Before I should have stayed away, I should have loved my dawn. Now I'm more lonesome than I was before. Day breaks. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast, 
and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you. Thank you.